Right, hello and welcome to the HD uh, Lockdown Pod. Uh, the Humanities Department are locked down and they are still podding. Here we all are. I'm Mr. Eithlestom and Mr. Lawton's there. Hi guys. And I think Mr. Patson can hear us too. Yep, how are we doing? Good, good, fantastic. So, firstly, I'd love to say a big thank you to everyone um, who's listened to the show so far. Sent some nice emails in, the feedback's been really, really good. And also we've had loads of questions in from students as well, so that's been fantastic. Uh, if you can carry on spreading the word, let other people know, let your friends know. Um, to give us a listen, really, really appreciated. Um, and we'll hopefully be doing this, well, uh, for as long as we can do. Um, not just as long as the lockdown lasts, we shall see. Um, also a quick mention, I notices, first and foremost, uh, there is some homework been set for history uh, and for geography over Easter. Of course, all work at the moment is homework, but uh, we would like you to keep on uh, ticking things over. Not too much, not as much you'd normally have in a week, um, but just a little bit of work to be, to be done there. Um, I'd like to give a shout out, or at least I'll pass it over to Mr. Lawton maybe to give a shout out uh, for his upcoming quiz potentially. You know, yeah, we're going to have a HD lockdown quiz. Um, I've tried with this extra time to become a, a YouTube live streamer, but I don't think my laptop and internet connection is quite up for that. So it'll maybe be done over Google Hangout and uh, you'll all get an email with all the information required to join in. Fantastic. Um, look forward to that one. Um, uh, we've got a couple of questions about how we've been getting on in the lockdown. Um, I think we'll just go for, for one for now and see how we get on. Um, one of the questions we've had is, have we actually been watching anything interesting? Uh, not necessarily something uh, that's to do with history or anything like that. Obviously, we spent a lot of time indoors recently and uh, the TV has become our faithful companion. Um, Mr. Patterson, have you been uh, watching anything uh, particularly at the moment? Um, so I managed to get through Tiger King, which is mental. Um, I think it seems like everyone's been watching it, but strongly recommend. Um, she definitely killed her husband. Um, and I've been watching Hell's Kitchen. Um, Hell's Kitchen from series one on Amazon Prime. And um, Gordon Ramsay only gets angrier with age. Yeah, I mean, Hell's Kitchen from series one. So that is going back some way, yeah? Yeah. yeah, yeah, Gordon Ramsay's only got a few wrinkles <laughs> pre-Botox. Um, I've also tried Tiger King as well. I'm only one episode in, so thanks for the spoilers. Um, I mean, it I'm is. Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, it is all over the shop. I couldn't believe what I was watching, to be honest with you. Um, and um, yeah, that's been a bit weird. I've also checked into uh, Disney Plus. Um, I've also I've signed up. I've, I've, I've paid my money. And I've been trying The Mandalorian as well. But most of the time in the last few weeks, I've been watching The Repair Shop. So that's my equivalent to, uh, to Hell's Kitchen. But there you are. Okay. Um, yeah, Mr. Lawton loves that too. Um, so um, I think we're going to move on at the end of part one. We're going to move into part two in a second and do a little bit of history. Um, so see you. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Mr. Eccleston. What about our um, dear leader? Oh, of course. Mr. Absolutely. Lawton. Sorry. Yeah, I've just, just missed him out. Oh, don't, don't worry, it's nothing interesting at all. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, new season's on Netflix now, smash that out. And, uh, of course, uh, Westworld is on Now TV, season three, class, class TV content. Apart from that, oh, I've just been watching any old rubbish that comes along, to be honest. There's a lot of uh, daytime TV stuff going on at the moment uh, that we have to sort of sift through, but uh, such is life. 
Um, right, so uh, this is now the end of part one, unlike it was a few seconds ago, and uh, we'll be back in a few moments with some history. Right, uh, welcome back to part two. We're going to get into some of the history, uh, first and foremost, that you've been uh, working on in the past week or so. Um, the focus this week, uh, for myself, I was going to talk a little bit about um, some of the A-level uh, work that historians have, the historians have been doing um, this week uh, and also in the Easter ho homework as well. Um, A-level students have been um, asked to uh, sort of study Theodore Roosevelt and uh, his presidency. Now this is obviously for everyone as well so not everyone will maybe know much about um, Theodore Roosevelt I mean but I would like to ask a first question to uh, Mr Lawton and Mr Patterson actually um, and it's about Mount Rushmore. Now obviously Theodore Roosevelt's there but who else is on Mount Rushmore? I wonder if any of you know which presidents would you find carved? Is it, the, is it the, um, the mostly older ones, aren't they? Is it um, Lincoln, yeah, uh, Washington, and... Um, Patson's scratching yeah, his... Uh, Jefferson. Fantastic, yeah, all three, yeah. So Washington, Lincoln, and Jefferson. Patson didn't even get a chance. Um, I, I know who's on the... Because uh, that's on the, the Lakota... Um, Sows land, isn't it? Sows land, Lakota Sows land. Yeah, it um, is. It's 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 yeah, on uh, the Black Hills, the sacred land of the of the Native American tribe, the Lakota Sioux. Yeah, there's a um, crazy horse. Is the uh, is like their equivalent, isn't it? That they've kind of tried it, to it's, get. Him. It's just down the road. This huge statue of Crazy Horse's head, which they've never actually finished because they've never been given any money by the government to actually build the thing. Uh, but top, you see history knowledge there. Uh, to try and uh, derail this and take it towards some geography. Um, as every environmentalist geographer knows, uh, nuclear energy produces a lot of nuclear waste. And when the US Geological Survey tried to find somewhere they could put the nuclear waste, apparently Mount Rushmore and the geology in that area is very good for housing nuclear waste. And it was proposed to go and bury that waste in Mount Rushmore at one point, And it got flatly rejected by every patriot in America. Because anyway. it's the historic site. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There you go. A, bit of, a good bit of trivia there. Um, so yeah, so those are the three. Um, I wondered if you know, Mr. Patterson, at least a little bit, why those three, why Washington, Jefferson, and um, Lincoln are on the monument. Uh, well, Washington, I believe, first president of America after the Revolution. Um, uh, who are the other ones? Lincoln, because um, he like won the Civil War, sort of, freed the slaves, all that stuff. Um, and Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Pretty good, actually, for for a history teacher. That's some pretty pretty good knowledge. Um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> so essentially, those three, uh, Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln, are seen to have a real pivotal uh, role. Or, or in the American story, uh, in terms of the. Go ahead. Is, 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 is Washington um, there alongside Jefferson? Because Washington's a representative of the North, whereas Jefferson's a representative of the South. Or was Washington, Washington from the South too? Was I mean, the, the, uh, Washington and Jefferson are both from the state of Virginia, which is technically in, ah. the, in what you'd see as the South. Mm, um, okay. But they're both very much seen as the father of 
fathers of the American nation. Uh, Jefferson writes the Constitution, a big part in writing the drafting the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Washington um, is seen the person who you know, wins, the, he's the general, he wins the war that drives off the British. And Lincoln, of course, keeps the country together. Those three, maybe you could see, see as understanding why their faces are up on, the, on, the, on Mount Rushmore. Whereas Theodore Roosevelt, who's the guy we're gonna be talking about uh, today briefly, um, it's maybe for some people hard to see why he is kept or put up on a pedestal along those three. Um, and in fact, an interesting bit of trivia perhaps about, the, about Mount Rushmore is that the person who designed it, a guy called Gutson Borglum, um, he was actually a friend and of Theodore Roosevelt and Roosevelt was his patron essentially. And some people have alleged that the only reason or one of the main reasons why Roosevelt was um, carved on the, on the mountain was because his mate designed and built it essentially, which is possibly a little bit unfair. And that's what we're going to have a look at a little bit today is about Roosevelt and see whether or not he deserves maybe to be up there with the big three, with Washington, Jefferson and uh, with Lincoln. So um, Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th president of the United States, uh, served from 1901 to 1909. Um, and I think the reason why I wanted to talk to him, uh, talk about him, was that he embodied all that is great and, and maybe at times not so great um, about the American national character. He was brash, he was bullish, uh, he was at times a bit reckless, um, he had an enormous appetite for life. Many of his contemporaries found him incredibly difficult to work with, uh, not naming any names, uh, who else like that, and, uh, but he was impossible to ignore. He was born in 1858 to uh, a very wealthy and powerful family. The Roosevelt's went back many, many generations. And he was someone who stood out from a relatively early age and someone who never kind of gave in to uh, the afflictions that, that faced him. I mean, he, he had very, very bad asthma as a young, a young lad, but he basically threw himself into everything. Rick um, took up rigorous exercise and almost boxed his way out of his condition. By, by early adulthood, he'd actually managed to overcome it. Um, he went to Harvard and actually when he was studying at Harvard, he wrote one of the kind of most respected and studied um, bits of literature on the War of 1812 called the, the Naval War of 1812, a hugely uh, respected book. And he wrote it actually in his final years of studying. So he's still a student uh, technically. Um, but uh, what he faced next was an incredible tragedy. And many people wouldn't have come back from this. Um, his father died when he was only 20 in 1878. But over the next couple of years, um, his first daughter was born. But the next day, his mother died. And only 11 hours later, his wife also passed away. Um, and in fact, it hit him so hard. And it, it's possible uh, that, uh, that the actual the death of his wife, he never mentioned her again, actually, when he wrote his biography. Um, but it hit him so hard that he actually abandoned his daughter, which is one of the certainly things you can level at him as a major criticism. Um, but it hit him so hard that he abandoned his life in the East, essentially, and uh, decided to go out into the West and become a cowboy, of all things. He left his daughter with his sister, um, and he went off to be a rancher, became a hunter. He learned how to kind of rope cattle and became the adventurer that he had kind of written about as a young man, experiencing things that many uh, future presidents and many presidents before never actually experienced, that kind of life in the wilderness, that life as an adventurer. And obviously, you know, he did go back in time, but he spent a good few years actually out living um, on the open plains. Um, but he did go back eventually and resume his political career. And by this point, he, he's still um, just around about 30 years of age. Um, and he resumed his political career and became the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, um, which is quite a prominent position. 
working um, in the Republican administrations at the time. And it was at that point, but you're still relatively, you know, not particularly well known beyond uh, New York State, um, that uh, America went to war with Spain over the island of Cuba, the Spanish-American War of 1898. And at that point, Teddy Roosevelt did something quite remarkable. He was a prominent politician, but he decided to resign uh, essentially his position as assistant secretary and go and fight in the war, doing something that many people wouldn't have expected. Uh, he formed a group of volunteers known as the Rough Riders. And this was a group of soldiers. Uh, they were athletes. Um, some of them were cowboys, people he knew from back out in the West. Native Americans joined up, hunters, miners, prospectors, um, even local sheriffs. And it was like this ragtag team of, of volunteer soldiers that he took off um, to Cuba and he led them on the front lines. And this was like a prominent politician of the day. This is like your, you know, your Matt Hancock's, I suppose, has been in the news a lot recently, just deciding to go and fight in a war. Um, he led the troops at the Battle of San Juan Hill and even in his spectacles, he never took them off. And uh, he returned a national figure, a war hero. Uh, and it really turned around, kind of turned his fortunes around, I suppose. Um, he came back and he was governor of New York within, uh, within a year or so. Uh, a year later, President McKinley uh, decided to choose him as his vice president. But at this time, he was still the reckless, the kind of the brash, the, um, the sort of the bullish character that nobody ever really wanted to be president, certainly not in the Republican Party, who he was a part of. They thought he was too risky. He was somebody who wouldn't play by the rules. Um, but they thought as vice president, he can kind of get a bit of a, uh, appeal because he's a war hero. Um, so they can work on that. But in 1901, President McKinley, who'd appointed him as his vice president, was assassinated and suddenly Theodore Roosevelt finds himself in the White House. He's a president at the age of 42, he's the youngest president in American, uh, American history, still is to this day, just a few, a few months younger than uh, JFK was. And his life experience at that point, he's a noted author of you know, historical work, he's spent time hunting and you know, ranching out in the West, he's fought on the front lines, He's done many things that most of his political kind of opponents uh, and contemporaries have never done. Um, and he finds himself president at the age of 42. Now, I think what we'll do is we'll kind of leave the story there. And um, next week or maybe the week after, we might pick this up and talk about his presidency and actually kind of his later life as well, because it doesn't stop uh, being so kind of uh, weird and wonderful, I suppose. Um, Theodore Roosevelt possibly, I think, earns himself a place um, on Mount Rushmore. Um, with that, I think we're going to turn to, for a little bit more history and a bit more A-level history, I believe, we're going to talk to um, Mr. Patterson um, uh, about, about some history relating to the English Revolution course. Yeah, so sorry GCSE lot. Um, don't turn off though, you know, you might do A-level um, soon. Um, so yeah, what my year 12s, we have all been looking at the first English Civil War. Um, and it's been mostly focused on the kind of battles, the fighting, the exciting stuff. Um, well, I am going to fill in the gaps um, and we're going to sort of look at what's happening in England between the fighting, between the major battles, um, what um, are kind of normal people doing, what are Parliament doing and what is Charles doing. So um, it's worth remembering generally during this first civil war, the war between the English Parliament and King Charles I. Um, England is generally split. The Northwest is Royalist, the Southeast is Parliamentarian. 
Um, so. 1643, you get this really weird situation where England suddenly, for the first time, pretty much in its history, has has two governments. Um, you've got Parliament, who have their capital in London, and you have got Charles, who has his own special sort of royalist capital um, in Oxford. And both sides are trying to run the country as best they can. So we'll look at uh, Parliament first. Um, Parliament, made up of mostly um, sort of middle class MPs, but you do have some lords involved, uh, some lords and earls and things like that. For them, they are spending most of the first civil war trying to get money, taxation. Um, never the most exciting thing in the world, taxation, but Parliament are, are desperate for money. They need it. They need to be able to fight a war. So they begin to tax everyday goods, things like bread, alcohol. Um, they also start to tax land, which is quite an interesting one, early kind of land taxation. Um, so depending on how much land you own will uh, kind of affect how much tax you have to pay. And the kind of final way Parliament begin to make money just wondering about the taxation. How, how did they collect tax back in those days? Because obviously we get taken out of our wage every month. So I was just wondering. Well, so tax collectors. So um, Parliament were actually very good at this, but it was your job. So you would have to go around, chap on the doors, collect the money kind of yourself. So bags of gold, bags of goods, things like that. Um, very unpopular job. Do you reckon it would be easier to dodge taxes in the 17th century than it is, is now? I think it would, uh, yeah. the likes of Jimmy Carr find it much more agreeable. Certainly. Allegedly. Um, allegedly. I don't know. It was probably easier for normal people to dodge taxes back then. Um, so who was the Amazon of the day? I think that's the key question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Duke of Buckingham, perhaps. Usually is. Um, it should be him. Go on. Um, so, Parliament are doing that. They're also beginning to it's called sequest property. They start to basically steal stuff, confiscate stuff. Um, so if you have a kind of, if you build ships, Parliament will just take over your business and start building warships. If you kind of make um, metal goods, they will take over your business and start making cannons and things like that. So Parliament are spending a lot of time during 1643 and all the way kind of through um, getting ready for the war, getting money, getting weapons, um, and being pretty unpopular, really. And this does come back to bite them in a few years. Um, the also thing that Parliament does, uh, which Parliament always does, is argue. Um, Parliament spends a huge amount of time fighting each other during the first year of the war. You have three big kind of parties emerge. Um, and they are all have very different ideas about the war. You've got the war party who want to absolutely crush the king. Um, you've got the peace party who want to negotiate. And then you've got this big middle party who kind of can't really make up their minds what they want to do. So Parliament spends this huge amount of time arguing. Now, for our year 12s and maybe our year 13s who are listening, um, you guys know John Pym is the kind of... Um, the leader of parliament, the man that sort of rules the whole thing. And he's able to, to balance it out. He's able to juggle all these different groups and juggle all the taxes and kind of run the whole thing. Any relation to PIMS? Uh, I have no idea. I would assume not, but possibly. Um, 
In the end, though, unfortunately for Parliament, John Pym does actually die in 1643. Uh, we don't know what of, probably cancer. Um, so hope you feel happy about that joke, Mr. Lawton. Um, and he is uh, buried in Westminster Abbey, which is a sign of how sort of hugely popular he is, um, or at least respected he is. He's actually not the most popular guy in the world, but how respected he is. Um, unfortunately for John Pym, his body is dug up in 1660 and dumped in just a pit. So he kind of, uh, there is no big sort of grave for John Pym. Um, but with his death, Parliament just gets even more aggressive. In year 12, so you guys will start to look at that later on and kind of how Parliament ends up sort of tearing itself apart a little bit. So that's Parliament. London, the area around London, is mostly based on taxation and kind of drumming up supplies. Very well organised, very, very well run, um, pretty kind of strong. For Charles, it's very different. The area that he runs is way less organised than Parliament. Um, he doesn't really do too much in the way of taxes. Instead, he does a lot of just confiscating goods and forcing people to kind of give his army food or forcing them to give him places to stay um, or forcing men to join the army. He doesn't really do much taxation. Um, and again, this is very unpopular. And because he's not very good at raising money, his soldiers are much, much less well-behaved than Parliament soldiers. So if Charles's army comes into town, you will get a lot of raping, a lot of theft, a lot of pillaging, and that just kind of really makes Charles very unpopular. Mr. Eccleston. Is there a situation at this time where you've, you've got Charles, or the King, and Parliament attempting to raise taxes from the same people? In theory, they're both national taxes, but in reality, it's only the areas that they control that they're able to get any money from. And again, Charles, he doesn't really do it. Um, sort of in proper tax okay. sort of ways. Um, he does start his own parliament as well. So just to get it even more confusing, he has a parliament in Oxford that isn't the parliament in London. Um, but even Charles doesn't think much of them. He calls them the mongrel parliament. So those guys are just kind of pottering about. You don't need to do, know too much about them. They are non-entities. So yeah, the royalist area is way more kind of scatty. The last thing both sides are trying to do is get allies. And again, if we look at this, Charles's way of trying to find allies is much more um, kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, whereas Parliament is much more considered in what it does. Parliament approached the Scots. Scotland is independent at this point. They are sat north of the border, kind of watching what's going on in England. Parliament approached them, come to terms, and Scotland ends up joining the war on Parliament's side. It's all based on religion and Protestantism. Charles approaches almost everyone. He approaches Scotland, he talks to the Irish Catholics, he sends his wife to Europe, Henrietta Maria, she talks to the French and the Spanish and the Dutch. Um, there's even um, negotiations with the Pope, things like this. He just tries anything and ultimately none of it works. The Irish Catholics agree to help him, but they're too busy fighting their own war in Ireland. Um, some of the Scots agree to help him, particularly um, men like the Duke of Hamilton and the Earl of Montrose. They say that they'll help Charles, um, but they don't really have much support apart from in the Highlands. So Scotland ends up fighting its own mini civil war at this point. 
Um, it's worth noting that the course we are studying is the English Civil War, but more Scots die than English in the English Civil War, and more Irish die than Scots and English put together. So maybe the War of the Three Kingdoms is a more accurate name. It's chaos. The First Civil War is absolute chaos. Um, and because of this chaos, common people begin to just take a step back and you get the club men. These kind of little individual towns that defend their towns against royalists and against parliament. They don't want to fight. And as the war goes on, these kind of club men, these neutrals, they get more and more popular. There's more and more towns that just say, we are not involved in this, we're not fighting. And as in any war, you get radicals begin to emerge. So you get people like levelers who are sort of like communists. They think everything should be owned um, equally. Some of them even think women should have an equal place in society, which for the sort of 1600s is incredibly um, forward thinking. Um, and you get people like the fifth monarchists who think that Charles is gonna die. And when Charles dies, Jesus is gonna come back and take over so there's no point in worrying about sin or laws or anything like that because Jesus is coming so just do what you want. You get the ranters who think they are Jesus and then even madder than all of that for someone in the 1600s you begin to see republicans people who start to say why do we need a king in the first place why don't we just have nothing. Um, so the first year the first few years of the civil war kind of is chaos but it's also this period of real kind of interesting ideas. And some of them are slightly mad and some of them are pretty important politically moving forward. So that's what we are going to look at over the coming kind of weeks. Quick question, uh, Mr. Patterson. When does the poodle get involved? Oh boy, yes. So Prince Rupert's dog, boy. Uh, he famously rides into battle, Prince Rupert, with his um, pet poodle, boy. Unfortunately, I think boy dies at Marston Moor. Oh. kind of has like a military funeral and things like that oh well that's a, a sorry end to that story um thank you uh, thank you very much mr patterson that was great um i think that brings us to the end of part two the end of the history chapter and uh, join us in a moment in part three which is a return to geography corner okay so welcome back to part three it's time to hand over to mr lawton for his um, segment on all things geography. Yeah, so uh, this week I'm turning our attention to three main focuses and uh, firstly I'd like to focus in on our fifth largest continent, uh, Antarctica. Um, and for those of you that don't know, if you've been in my geography classes, you've heard me probably say this countless times, but Antarctica comes from the Greek word uh, Arctos. Uh, Arctos means of the north, and Antarctica means not of the north, so it's the one that we find at the southernmost point of our planet. And Antarctica has been in the news recently, so um, this is just to kind of bring this to your attention if you haven't seen it already. Now, what's happened is uh, scientists have been going and collecting ocean sediment samples from the bottom of the ocean around Antarctica. And they've been analysing that using their latest technology, using CT scans, uh, um, using machinery that we would find in our hospitals to help diagnose uh, biological um, issues with our human bodies. But they've been applying this to um, sediment samples to see what the pollen count was like and the different gas uh, the different gas contents of the particles that are actually in the soil and uh, from that they've been able to then deduce uh, what the climate was like um, a long long time ago. Uh, we're talking about a 90 
1990 million years ago and antarctica which we all know has been a frozen place heavily uh featured inside uh, david attenborough's great series uh, frozen planet um uh, was actually a tropical rainforest and this uh this tropical rainforest that existed at the time uh, would have had the same variety and biodiversity that we would expect in the rainforest found in Australia uh, in New Zealand and the southernmost points of uh, South America. Now um, this research by uh, the Alfred Wegener Institute and uh, Alfred Wegener is actually uh, one of the guys behind uh, plate tectonic theory. It's something that our parents, uh, well, ours, I mean, the teacher's parents will not have even studied, but the idea of continental drift. And uh, this institute had gone out there and uh, had done this research back in 2017. But like any good scientist, they went and got all their research peer reviewed and everybody's gone over it. And it seems like it's pretty solid evidence that they found to see that one almost uh, frozen part of the world. Uh, it's the coldest part of the world. Temperatures going down to minus 89 degrees Celsius. Um, it's our highest continent on average at being over a kilometre in height. Uh, um, it's actually a former home of a tropical rainforest. So uh, that's one little bit of uh, knowledge for you. Now, I know the question that I'll get next week is why was it a tropical rainforest down there? It was, still was at the southernmost point. It was at the part of the planet where they will have had four month long uh, winters that would have contained very little of no sunlight at that point so why was it so warm the actual over uh, overall the average temperature of the planet was a lot warmer and that's because co2 content at the time due to volcanic activity was a lot uh, greater at that period of uh, the earth's development um so that was my first little tidbit of geography this week uh my next one actually is uh, something that i've taken a little bit of ridicule from from our history teachers just to know the uh, content of the character of uh, some of our history teachers here i'll let you figure out what the joke was uh, and it's about the danger of uh single stories now um i've uh, adopted the human geographer role at Barrow over the last few years, really. And uh, this is actually based upon a fantastic TED talk, which is now over 11 years old. And uh, within this TED talk, talking of the danger of a single story, uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, um, a Nigerian academic, goes through her experiences of growing up in uh, Lagos in Nigeria, uh, Lagos not being the capital of Nigeria anymore, it was the colonial capital in the past. And um, she talked about growing up in a middle class background with academic parents. And um, when she grew up, she read about British white children playing in the snow, drinking ginger beer. And when she wrote her own stories, she wrote about playing in the snow and complaining about the weather. Um, things at the time never really crossed her mind as being, well, that's pretty weird. She never seen snow, she never had to complain about weather and she didn't drink ginger beer at all. She didn't even know what it was really. Um, but she grew up with these stories influencing hers and she didn't read about her own people there. And, and as she went, moved on through her life and education, this became more apparent to her. She went and studied in, uh, in America. And when she first turned up her flatmate, asked her um do you know how to use a stove um do you know how to make a bed and she was like yes very much so she, she had no idea why but the american student who she was staying with what wasn't let's say uh not well read uh well well read at all she had got a, a wealth of 
um, knowledge, but unfortunately her stories that she read about Africa have been very singular about poverty. They've been about the extremes of African society and she immediately therefore placed uh, Chimamanda into uh, this category of being in the poverty side of Africa. Now, Africa, for those of you who know, is uh, 54 different countries and Chimamanda had to often field these questions about places like Rwanda, places like Zimbabwe, she had no idea about them. And this great TED talk you can go and look for now, it's called uh, The Danger of a Singular Story. Uh, and you should watch it all, it's around 15 minutes long and it just makes us come alive to the fact that we do live inside our little bubbles when we read about things. We often provide ourselves our own echo chambers on Facebook and on Twitter and it means that we shape the world around us through very limited sort of um, very limited sort of variety of materials um and uh, i thought because some of you guys will be like oh that sounds really nice but what do you mean about this for me um i was thinking about a uh, biff and chip uh, do you two gentlemen know biff and chip are biff and chip i've uh, it's uh, no <laughs> no no idea not no idea i'm afraid Oh, oh, in the English education system, they have a series of books that run alongside, uh, like going from reception all the way up to year six. I clearly wasn't paying attention in class um, back then. Yeah. Oh well. Uh, no. Well, they're very much um, they're very much white middle class people who go on adventures around the countryside. Or you could talk about the famous five. You could talk oh, about yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. But I but I often read these stories, and I never once as a child turned around and thought, I don't do this. I, I I don't go and get lost in the house. I can't get lost in the house. It's very strange. It's quite small, you know. Uh, it's very strange. It does kind of make you wonder about how much we do read into one singular story. And does that time. kind of give sometimes that sort of creates that rose tinted vision maybe of childhood sometimes that you you link it to sometimes you associate it to things that you've read and experienced that wasn't your own. Yeah, definitely. But I think also it leads to the more sinister thing. We associate the idea of. Um, social media and seeing these sort of distorted lives that like we only yeah, see yeah. the happy parts of people's lives but at the same time you've got lots of children who are reading of these things and seeing that this was a normal life and if they grew up um, they would be living in houses that weren't like these things they read when they were children and they didn't have these adventures does that mean that their childhood was any less valuable no not at all and uh, and i think it would be quite interesting to read some literature that was maybe set in different circumstances for children to raise those aspirations about what they're actually experiencing Absolutely. Um, and uh, my final part isn't uh, too long at all but it's uh, the, the streets will uh, never forget uh, Mary Finch uh, Mary Finch is an icon of the A-level geography course um, and a shout out to Nathan who uh, emailed in for me uh, an article that I was actually released in January but we had already um, spoken about Mary earlier on in the course and we've gone past that so I don't really update my resources till the next year and um, on the E15 page um, E15 is the postcode of the area Mary lived in and um, she's an icon because she was a social activist um, she was somebody who battled gentrification and battled uh, the social uh, displacement of a community uh, from East London as a result of the London 2012 Olympics, um, a scheme which brought about it many economic benefits to the 
country, so to say, and uh, unfortunately, though, caused people who had lived in an area for 40 years to find themselves being kicked out virtually overnight without any sort of consultation. And um, she herself stood up against the local council, uh, against the, um, the our UK International Olympic Committee, um, and um, she unfortunately was removed from her property and now she's uh, passed away but her legacy will remain I believe in our um, in our courses and our geography lessons but also uh, in several plays that were written about the uh, gentrification of Stratford which is where the Olympic Park is and uh, she uh, features prominently in a few of them uh, because of his sort of mini celebrity status so uh, um, yeah this is just to spend a moment remembering uh, Mary Finch. Right, I think, thank you, Mr. Lawton, I think that it's now time for um, an incredible new feature um, to, to the HD Lockdown pod. Um, we're going to have a, a, bit of a, a bit of a game. It's time for Mysterious Country. I'm using random data, using varied data. All random facts, don't judge me. You can guess it when it's your time. I said, ooh, mysterious country. No, I can't stop until you are right. So then, as you can guess by the theme tune, this is a mysterious country. And this is a little game for us to play uh, towards the end of our show. And uh, there are some simple rules uh, to follow. We're going to have a bit of a competition between Mr. Patterson and Mr. Eccleston. And uh, we're going to be going... Uh, for a mysterious country where they will be given seven clues uh, to what the mysterious country could be. Now, those, these clues could be anything about the country whatsoever. Uh, once I've said a clue, um, they can say stop, and then they can say which country they think it is. They only get to have one guess per round, and let's say you were very close with your guess, and the other person then goes stop and says it because they've certainly had the light bulb switch on they get the point and uh, it's a best of three okay so uh, do you want anything clarified with the rules uh, sounds good clear as day okay all right then so uh, mysterious country number one this week can be found in the southern hemisphere stop it can be found in the southern hemisphere go on Mr. australia incorrect uh, argentina Incorrect. You didn't say stop. You, you didn't say stop, but seeing that Mr. Eccleston had already gone, uh, we'll accept that. We've got no time for people like that, Mr. Eccleston. Uh, right, clue number two. Um, it's a democratic republic. Stop. South Africa. Incorrect. Uh, stop. Very good. New Zealand. Incorrect. Um, clue number three, and I think this will uh, narrow it down for you a little bit. It's um, Spanish-speaking. Uh, Spanish is its main language. Stop. Mr. Patterson. Ecuador. Incorrect. Stop. Mr. Eccleston. Chile. Incorrect. Um, so, uh, clue number four. Um, this country is economically the richest in terms of GDP per capita, that's the average income per person, its continent so this is the richest country on that continent economically by gdp per capita 
this is when we have thrilling podcasting when you're like just listening to us think. Stop. Mr. Patterson. Puerto Rico. That's not even a country, is it? I, I, um, I don't think Puerto Rico is uh, actually in the Southern Hemisphere. I may be incorrect there. But yes, anyway, let's go. Uh, so stop. I'm going to go for the Philippines. Incorrect. Also, once again, I believe the Philippines may not be in the, the Southern Hemisphere. Um, right. Uh, it, uh, it has a population. This is clue number uh, six, I believe. Six or five. Anyway, uh, of three million people. It's got a population of around 3 million people. I think this will help you guys out quite a bit. It's not helping. <laughs> um, so, Southern Hemisphere, loaded, Spanish-speaking. Spanish I think that narrows it down to the continent, to be honest. Stop. Paraguay. Incorrect, Mr. Eccleston. My last Stop. clue. Go on. Uh, it's got to be Panama. Incorrect, incorrect. Uh, right, so last clue, and I think Mr. Ackleston will get it straight away. Um, this country has won the World Cup twice. Stop! Mr. Patterson. Oh, Uruguay. <laughs> it's Uruguay, oh. or as they would say there, Uruguay. Yes, Uruguay. I'll to uh, Mr. Patterson. I am, I am fuming. I yeah, that was yours all day. I can't believe you let that down. Um, right, so country number two. Um, clue number one. Uh, the coldest capital in the world. This is Stop. The coldest capital in the world. Mr. Patterson. Finland. Incorrect. I'm going to swear. <laughs> I'm going to have to hurry you along. Uh, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll jump for one. Uh, North Korea. Incorrect. Uh, two, it's landlocked. Stop. Go on. Estonia. Incorrect. No, of course it's not, not landlocked. No. Mr. Patterson, you're staying out of this one? I might as well have a guess. Uh, coldest capital in the world. Landlocked. And it's landlocked. Uh, Germany. <laughs> Incorrect. Um, okay. Uh, so, um, wrestling is this country's national sport. Stop. Mr. Eccleston. Oh, uh, Tajikistan. No. Right. Uzbekistan. No, moving on. <laughs> um, the currency is the uh, Tugrog. The oh. uh, currency is the Tugrog. Kazakhstan? No. <laughs> is it a Stan? <laughs> Just to narrow it down so we don't go through all, it's not a Stan. Stan means country, by the way, for those of you who are wondering why there are so many places with I Stan at the end. Uh, uh, I, I, what? A, a Grog? A Tugrog? Tugrog. Yeah. Right. What accent? Sounds good saying two grog. Cold. For fear of recrimination, I am not going to do it in an accent. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, is it somewhere like somewhere high? Because it's cold. So high altitude. Landlocked high altitude. Uh, so a hilly, I, a hilly I, country. Potentially. I, uh, no, incorrect. Okay, a quarter of the population are nomads. Stop. Mongolia. Mr. Correct, Mr. Eccleston. Well done. 1-1. One, one. It's made it dramatic getting into the Ooh. final round. Right, okay. So our final country, mysterious country, number three. First clue. Um, this country was had its first settlement in the ninth century. Stop. Mr. Eccleston. Iceland. 
Mr. Eccleston wins. Well done. Straight in there. Straight Victory away. is mine. Um, just so that uh, I know some of you would want some facts there. We should have been Iceland in Iceland this week. Uh, but unfortunately, nobody's going anywhere at the moment. Um, the, the other clues are going to be it's uh, got no forests. Um, it's got um, no surnames. There. You actually get your last name in the country from taking the first name of mothers and fathers. That's why you have um, Sigurd's son or Sigurd.ia, which will be um, a daughter. Um, the modern day language in Iceland, you can still read texts that are a thousand years old uh, because uh, it's so closely related to traditional Norse. 60% uh, of the population live in the capital. Uh, there are no McDonald's there and uh, it's got the highest uh, consumption of Coca-Cola per person in the world. Anyway, thanks for playing and well done Mr. Arkleston for winning. The Thank first you very much. Yeah. So, so no, no McDonald's then is probably the only thing uh, that the Icelanders aren't really noticing in terms of a change during this lockdown. We're all suffering terribly, but these guys are having a having a reasonable time. Um, yeah, they'll be having a great old time there on their little island where everything costs a fortune due to it. <laughs> um, right, so thank you uh, very much for the first uh, game of Mysterious Country. Mysterious Country no, I can't stop until you are right. That brings us to the end of part three. Part four, we'll see Mr. DeSalvo in the house. Welcome back to part four. And uh, part four brings Mr. DeSalvo into the uh, HD lockdown pod. Hello, Mr. DeSalvo. Hi, Mr. DeSalvo. Buongiorno. Well, hello, everybody. And um, thank you for having me again on the you know on the show um today i would like to talk a little bit about uh, how we feel in regards to the exams having been cancelled um i know that it's difficult when you know we've been working towards a particular goal and that goal then no longer is so i know that whilst the pressure of facing exams has maybe cheered some of us up. Then on the other hand, I appreciate that um, many students have felt that their efforts won't be, you know, um, repaid or graded in the way that perhaps they were expecting. And um, yeah, obviously the government has chosen to um, do, to cancel everything. And um, um, I was wondering if you were aware that other countries have taken slightly different um, measures, um, actually. So, for example, um, in Spain, um, they have not cancelled all of the exams, um, but they have decided to make the, um, well, the equivalent of our um, GCSEs and A-levels kind of exams a little bit easier by, you know, having them online and they've agreed on having you know, more of a multiple choice style questions without um, obviously in examining on the content of the last period of the year. Um, although the Spanish government are a bit concerned about the quality of, um, you know, the amount of technology that loads of families have in Spain. And I know they're trying to kind of fill that gap to allow everybody to be able to sit those exams online um, they have extended um, the dates of the exam so uh, different regions have been asked to choose a date between the 22nd of June and the 10th of July um, to actually arrange for these um, exams 
Um, and a lot of people also were asking about summer holidays. Should it be shortened? Should we start a bit earlier after the summer holidays? But actually, the governments all across Europe um, um, have decided to to follow the usual calendar. Um, in France, uh, what's happening is that, um, you know, they've done a little bit what we've done in the UK instead of... Um, evaluating over um, exams, you know, teachers will have to do an evaluation based on, you know, everything that has been done throughout the year and the various terms. Um, although there is a chance that um, the third term, so the last term, summer term, might be extended this year and the government have said that students may still be tested during that period. So it's a bit... Um, of a funny um, one. And um, in Italy, actually, they have cancelled um, all of the written um, exams. And what's going to happen instead is that unless they resume school uh, towards the end of May, which is at the moment a bit unlikely, and um, the only exams will take place orally and um, via, you know, obviously computer. But um, everybody else in the lower years will be um, taking into the year after. So we normally have a tradition of doubling the year if we don't do very well. Um, but everybody's going to, yeah, carry on, despite perhaps not having worked hard this year. And I wanted to know what, you know, as students, you guys might think about that. And would you have preferred a different approach uh, or not? And would you have done what, I don't know, Spain, Italy or France have done instead? Uh, for the second part of this, actually, I wanted to um, suggest a couple of things. I know everybody's binge watching TV series at the moment, probably spending a bit more time watching TV anyway. And uh, for those of you who've um, been learning Spanish or have an incline, an inclination, an inclination even to, you know, uh, approach some Spanish TV series, there's quite a few that Netflix offers and uh, bearing in mind that a lot of these titles are 15 um rated um please have a look at the plot um but there is one on school called elite um and there is one about uh, witches called siempre bruja i'm happy to email these titles because i appreciate you might not be able to spell them and uh, there's jane the virgin which is um super super cute i watched it uh, made in mexico and there's um, Las Chicas del Cable that focuses on women's figures. Um, so there is that for us to uh, perhaps, you know, watch. And they are all available also with English um, audio or subtitles. But I appreciate that perhaps at the beginning you might want to um, use you know, the Spanish subtitles perhaps with the English audio the other way around. Or uh, there's loads of, you know, other TV series you can also watch. Um, that are American or, you know, British, but you can watch them um, in Spanish, for example. And then they, you know, that way you're really familiar with the vocabulary and by reading the subtitles, listening in English, you'll be able to pick a few more words. And um, if you're watching or want to watch something in French, um, there is a very interesting TV series called Osmosis, uh, rated 15. It's about a dating app, but you kind of... Uh, take 
um, almost a tablet to access it. Um, it's quite a controversial one, uh, but recommended. And then there's Call My Agent is the English title uh, for another interesting series or um, Marianne. And I will email people with um, a couple more titles so that you can perhaps see that, um, you know, some of the different, um, I don't know, actors, actresses, um, how they they perform in a different language or what do our American actors sound like in, uh, you know, French or Spanish if they are dabbed. Okay, um, I hope everyone's keeping safe and well and, um, yeah, um, we'll speak to you next week, hopefully. Bye. Bye, Mr. DeSalvo. Thank you so much for that. Cheers, sir. Bye, Mr. DeSalvo. All right, speak to you next week. Okay, let's move swiftly on to part five where we'll get a few of your questions. Right, uh, welcome back to part five of the HD uh, Lockdown Pod. Uh, we've had a, a load of questions in um, this week, and um, there's just a few really, really quick ones I want to just sort of fire through. Uh, one question we had was, can we do something soon to finish off uh, the Conflict and Tension in Asia course, which the Year 11s were doing at GCSE? And uh, me and Mr. Patson have agreed that next week we'll put something together to talk about the Vietnam War and how that came to a conclusion. So we'll look forward to that. We had a, a quick one about um, citizenship, actually, citizenship rearing its uh, ugly head, I suppose, um, asking what exam board that we're on, and it is AQA, and um, there is uh, just one paper for citizenship, essentially, there's no high, sorry, one tier, I should say, there's no higher or lower paper, so thank you for that question. Um, whilst we're just there on that, every course that's offered uh, in the humanities department is AQA. Um, we all do the same examination. Yeah, so if you're on the lookout for any extra resources or exam papers, obviously you can come to us and ask us, but if you are looking, you can go to the AQA website and there'll be bits and pieces there to help you out. We've also had one interesting request for Mr. DeSalvo to sing, which is potentially something we could persuade him to do next week. We I am fully be... supporting this. I am fully supporting this. Let's I get think that done. we're all on board with this. Um, but uh, one question we had uh, was from Katie and Gina, and they asked um, who are our favourite or most interesting figures um, sort of across the GCSE um, history or A-level history courses. And I've been told that I can't talk about Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he is far and away my most favourite. So if I can't talk about FDR, um, I will talk about, obviously, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, the other Roosevelt, actually their fifth cousins. Uh, he was someone, obviously, I talked about earlier in the pod. He is uh, a figure that I kind of hold in great esteem as well. Um, Elizabeth I is just fascinating. It's great to have one course. Obviously, we talked about her last week. Um, it's great to have kind of one course where you can really get to know an individual um, uh, over a series of lessons where a lot of our courses, we kind of have people pop up here and there and we never get a chance to get to know them. I think it's a bit different, um, though, for you, um, Mr. Patterson, in your English Revolution course at A-Level, you get, do get a chance to spend quite a lot of time with certain individuals. Mm -hmm. um, so my favourite, without a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, is James the Sixth of Scotland and the First of England. I love him, not just because he's Scottish um, and because English historians give him a pretty bad rap most of the time. Um, he's kind of gone down in history as this sort of um, slightly useless king, uh, despite the fact that he was um, incredibly intelligent um, had written loads and loads of well not loads and loads but had written a fair few books um, he 
tried his best to keep the country at peace, refused to get involved in wars, saw his job as sort of being the father of his people. So he said, father shouldn't try and get his sons killed, so why would I? Um, yes, he made a few mistakes. He was quite a controversial man, um, sort of openly bisexual, um, had absolutely no problem with hosting sort of massive parties and orgies and huge drinking sessions, which his English subjects were not particularly um, accustomed to. I was going to say, didn't he have any, uh, he didn't have any time for tobacco, is that right? Uh, yeah, he banned smoking. He said that it was bad for you, despite the fact that the common kind of knowledge at the time was that it actually was good for your lungs. James said that's... He was ahead of his time then. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And just, um, he just did not care what other people thought about him, and he just kind of did it himself. And despite the fact historians have said that he's useless, and despite the fact that history has judged him pretty poorly, um, when he does eventually die, all of England goes into this sort of mass mourning. People are really upset, common people. Um, maybe not the people that were writing the history at the time, but the common people were sort of devastated by his death. Um, which maybe says that, yes, he annoyed the poshos, but us commoners seem to quite like him. And as a very, very much a commoner, I love him. So James I, my favourite figure from the courses. Well, you've certainly sold, sold him to me, uh, sir, so that's uh, fantastic. Um, as, uh, as somebody who has to sit through uh, quite a few history lessons as part of my uh, job, I'm going to go with Buckingham is my favourite character. Everyone loves Buckingham. Well, that's what I mean. I hear about him outside of lessons. Students love him. I quite like him. I've had to sit through a couple of lessons, so I've had to listen about him. Oh, fabulous guy. I don't know I think, a lot more about him. I think we need uh, Mr. Patterson to do a Buckingham special maybe in a, in a few weeks' time. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, we could do a Buckingham special. Um, the last question of the day, and we have to end with this one. So, Mr. Lawton, Mr. Patterson, would this is from Alfie? Would you rather marry Henry VIII or live and be around during the Black Death? Mr. Lawton, I'll go to you first. Um, I I think I would marry Henry VIII. Um, I I I think kind of a little bit of pride in the fact that he's had so many wives, and then I'd be his first choice. But I'll take that over. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Patterson, uh, straightforward, uh, Henry VIII, marry it or uh, be around during the Black Death? Henry VIII, all day. What a man. Fantastic. I've done a bit of a kind of a maths kind of a game. I mean, if you marry Henry, you've got one third chance of being executed. If you're around during the Black Death, it's probably 30, 40% mortality rate. I think you've got a better chance of surviving uh, if you stick around with Henry. So there is that. And also, life would probably be a bit more fun as well. Okay, so this brings us to the end of another uh, HD lockdown pod. Thank you so much to uh, Mr. Lawton. Thank you very much for having me. And to Mr. Patterson. Thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll be with you again soon uh, next week. Um, all the best and stay safe. Goodbye. Divorced, beheaded, survived. No, what is it? Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Taught citizenship.